In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear asks this question. We'll put that on the screen for you here. Are you becoming the type of person you want to become? Right now, as you see a future vision of yourself and you want to take steps in that direction, are you taking those steps? Are you doing what is necessary to become the person you want to become? Now, in a culture of instant gratification, our culture has a lot of promises that we can get there very fast, doesn't it? There's these seminars that you could go to. It's a get-rich seminar that over the next month or two, you can double your money, and then in the next year, you can be a millionaire. Just give money to this seminar, and it'll be okay, right? Or there's these diet pills that promises losing 50 pounds in three weeks. If that's true, please tell me what those are. I would like to buy some of those. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But, or, or there's these things out there that we call self-help books that promise to make us a better version of ourselves. By the way, self-help books annually makes $11 billion per year. Now, when you do those things, or like tomorrow is Monday and you think, okay, tomorrow the diet starts... <laughs> Tomorrow I'm going to be a better dad. Tomorrow I'm going to be a better coworker. Tomorrow I'm going to try harder to be a better husband or whatever it is. Do you really, truly end up becoming more like the version of the self that you see you becoming? Why is it that when we do these get rich schemes or take these diet pills or Monday starts tomorrow, why is it that it feels like we become further away from the vision of ourselves? Why don't we ever truly become who we want to become? Well, again, James Clear in his book Atomic Habits gets to this. He says this, success is the product of daily habits, not a once-in-a-lifetime transformation. It doesn't happen, boom, starting tomorrow, and hopefully by the end of the week, we're going to be who we want to be. No, it's every single day doing the right thing over and over and over again, even when you don't see the results that leads to becoming the person we want to become. And that's why he defines a habit like this. A habit is a routine, or it should say behavior, performed regularly. The effects of your habits, they actually multiply they seem to make little difference on any given day, and yet the impact that these habits deliver over the months and years can be enormous. We never see the outcome of our daily habits on a daily basis, but someday when we need it the most, whether it's in the weeks or the months or the years to come, we we'll begin to become the person that we want to become. But it doesn't happen easily, nor does it happen instantly. It happens moment by moment, day by day, doing the daily grind of the right thing habitually. One of the greatest illustrations that I can show you is bamboo. You're thinking, bamboo, really? Well, yeah, this is a bamboo a forest in Japan. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? Here's the interesting part about how bamboo grows. Bamboo can, be, can barely be seen for the first five years as it builds its extensive root systems underground before exploding 90 feet into the air in six weeks. Did you know that about bamboo? I had no idea. 
For five years, you're thinking, we planted this stuff. Why isn't it coming up? And within a month and a half, it grows to 90 feet. When we're doing the right thing over and over again, every single day, we're laying the groundwork for life change. But this isn't anything new to the Apostle Paul. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. He says, now train yourself to be godly. Physical training, it's good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. He says, listen, a healthy diet and exercise, that's really good for your body. We need to do those things to be healthy and live longer. But those things pale in comparison to who we need to become on the inside, that we need to become like Christ here into eternity. And the way that happens is doing the daily thing over and over and over again. And you may not see the results of that, but I promise you, you put in the effort every single day, even when you don't want to, over the months and weeks and years, you'll look back on yourself and think, I used to be that, but now I'm here. And the only way to get here is doing the right thing on a daily basis. Which is why we're kicking off our message series today that we're calling Habits. Or what we call when it comes to the spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. These are the things that we need to do on a regular basis to become more like Jesus. And so we're going to look at topics of prayer, confession, fasting, sharing our faith, and celebration. All five of these are the things that we need to build into our lives so that we can be training for godliness. But I'm going to teach on one today that Spencer uh, led us through in worship today that we don't often talk about. And it's meditating on Scripture. Now, the reason, I think, we don't talk about meditation a lot is because it has a negative connotation, especially in the church. So I want to ask two questions right off the top, two questions that we have to answer for us to convince ourselves that God is asking us to do this. So here are these two questions or two hurdles we need to get over this morning right away. Isn't meditation bad? And then the second question is, why can't I simply just read scripture? Why in the world do I have to meditate on it? Now, the first question, is meditation bad? The simple answer is no. In fact, studies show us that meditating on a regular basis is beneficial and good for our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, and our spiritual health. Meditation is good. But let's ask a different question to probably get at the heart of what we're asking. What purpose is it that we're fasting for? What do we want as the final outcome? And why are we doing it? Now, when we start to ask those questions, we start to see that there's different options when it comes to meditation and why we want to do it. So I want to go over three just briefly with you because this is very important. We have the non-religious meditation, Eastern religion slash New Age meditation, and then what we'll call Christ-centered meditation. Now, the first one we're calling non-religious meditation is because there are people who meditate on a daily basis who are not doing it for spiritual or religious reasons. 
They're doing it to practice what we call mindfulness. Now, here's the path of meditation for those who would call themselves non-religious. They practice mindfulness to obtain a healthy perspective on life and that, in the end, leads to peace. Now, the word mindfulness, when, when people are meditating to obtain mindfulness, all they're doing is really just taking an inventory of what is going on in their lives. They're slowing down, setting aside their phone, setting a set time to just practice being aware, being present about who they are and where they're going. And if there's some struggles in their lives, they're trying to figure out in a really concentrated way how to get over those things. And in the end, just like everybody wants, they desire peace. I'll come back to this. The second kind of meditation is called the Eastern religion or New Age meditation. Many of us are probably thinking this when we think of meditation, especially when we think it's kind of bad. <laughs> this kind of meditation is emptying the mind and detachment from the world, and this results in what they say, peace. So they literally empty the mind. What this means is they empty themselves of their personality. To be an individual, that's not a good thing. So they empty themselves of who they are as a person in order to then detach themselves from the world because the world is bad, the world has problems. The world has suffering, and we don't want to be a part of that. And so they try to go to this place of otherworldly peace called nirvana. Not the band, nirvana, but a place that's literally a transcendent place where if they can get there in their minds, no matter what they're going through, they'll feel this sense of overwhelming peace. The third one that we want to look at is the Christ-centered approach, which is not emptying the mind, but rather filling the mind with God's word. And instead of detaching from ourselves, we actually attach ourselves to Christ, which leads to peace. And so we literally chew on God's word. We sit in it, just like Spencer led us this morning. We abide in it. We fill our lives with it so that in the end, when we walk away from spending time in God's word, our thought, thoughts are shaped by God's thoughts. And these aren't just the conscious thoughts. These are our subconscious thoughts, even the things that we're not even thinking in the present, but this tape that's going in the back of our minds, how we're interpreting the world and interpreting suffering and even interpreting who we are. Those kinds of thoughts are being shaped by God's word as well. And we don't detach ourselves from ourselves. We attach ourselves to Christ. And when we attach ourselves to Christ, we get a sense of who we are and our purpose, what we're doing in life. It's, it's colorful when we see ourselves in light of who Christ is. Three definitions we had to define at the beginning, but it's important, and here's the reason why. First of all, if you practice a non-religious meditation or an Eastern religious meditation, I want you to know I'm not here to judge. I'm just defining what those look like. But I respectfully want to just address one thing. At the end of each pattern of meditation or the reason we meditate, we want 
peace. And the reason I feel like the first two fall short of peace is because of this. Mindfulness, you're paying attention to who you are and getting in touch with who you are. Honestly, when I am trying to get in touch with who I am, I find pretty quickly I don't always like who I am. (laughs) And I'm trying to figure out if I don't really like who I am and I don't have a solution going forward to fix my problems, then in the end, where do I really get that peace? Or if we're looking at the Eastern religion practice, to detach ourselves from ourselves feels so inauthentic. Why would God create us with a personality if we can't live in that personality? I would feel like even though it may lead to this kind of peace, I would feel like I'm meditating in a way that's not true to who God has made me. And that's why I advocate for Christ-centered meditation. Because when we're looking at ourselves and we don't like what we're seeing, I can quickly attach myself to Christ. And I can see who I am and who I'm becoming in light of who he is and who he's made me and who he's making me as I process and grow in the Christian faith. And I don't have to detach myself from the world's problems. I need to know how to deal with them. And I deal with them by seeing what God has to say about it and obeying that so that I can live like a real person in a real world. And that's why Christian meditation through meditating on God's word to get to know who Jesus is, is vital. It's a daily discipline. It's a habit that you and I have to build into our lives, or I promise you, we will be missing out on who Christ is and what he has to say to our lives. I don't think I've convinced some of you yet, because here's the second question. Why can't I just simply read scriptures? Like, I have these daily devotionals and my daily bread. You guys send out a devotional every week through the email. Uh, I have my yearly Bible verses. Why can't I just read it? Why do I have to fill my life or meditate on it or chew on scripture? Maybe this will help. If you were to take a picture of me in college or seminary, I would look similar to this fellow right here. This is a guy who obviously is drinking coffee. He's in the library studying, and he's just like, I don't even know what I'm going to do for this exam. I'm probably going to fail. I should just give up right now. That's kind of how I feel like he's thinking right now. And that's kind of how I felt when I was taking exams. I could write a paper, but I could not take an exam really well. Is a bad t- any bad test takers in here? Yes, you're gonna, I think you're going to feel me on this then. Now, one of the reasons, I'll admit from the top, that I was a bad test taker is because I had bad study skills. Now, every time that you walk into a college or seminary class, they give you a syllabus. In the syllabus, they lay out when every exam is going to be. So if there's an exam in December, and I know it's going to be on it, I can start to study in September. The problem is, when there's an exam, let's say, before school lets out December 15th, I start to study December 14th at 9 p.m. And so I get all of this information, and I start to cram it in my mind. And so I start about 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and I would study and study and study and cram and cram and cram as much as I could. And then I would be exhausted, and I would try to get a couple hours of sleep. So I would cram for like seven, eight hours, try to get sleep about four or five in the morning. Sometimes an exam was at eight in the morning, so I had to stay up all night. I would get multiple cups of coffee and just start chugging it, even if it just was 
piping hot down my throat. I didn't care. I had to get all this caffeine so I could sit in front of an exam and somehow recollect all of this information to put on the test, which meant I didn't always get good grades. Let's be honest. But sometimes I did. Sometimes I would be pleasantly surprised when I got a good grade. Other times I would not tell my parents about that grade. But here's the thing that I had in common with every exam that I took in either college or seminary. If you were to come up to me a day later or even a few hours later and you started to ask me about the stuff that I studied, I guarantee you I could not tell you anything. I would fill my mind with it, allow it to uh, go on to the exam, and I would just literally wipe my brain and I would not have anything there anymore. And the reason I tell you that this morning is I wonder if this is how we approach Scripture. I wonder if we want to be inspired and we want to read our devotions and we want to read the Bible and we just quickly read it. And then later in the day, when a situation comes up, whether we need to be a, a patient father or we need to be an honest coworker, or we need to interpret suffering in a certain way or whatever it is, and someone were to come up to you and even ask, hey, what did you read in the Bible today? Many of us would say, I don't even remember. That's a problem. What's the point of reading scripture if it doesn't transform our lives? What's the point of reading scripture if it's not seeping into our hearts and minds so that our thoughts lead to who Christ's thoughts are so we can live like Jesus? If we're just simply coming to church and hearing a message and then quickly reading scripture throughout the week or not at all, or this is the only scripture that you have, like today, I promise you it's not going to do what it's called to do. You can't just cram it in your mind and then hope you have it when you need it. It won't be there. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, you got to let the message about Christ in all of its richness fill your lives. The Greek word for fill there literally means to allow to dwell in your heart. It literally means it has to make its home in you. We have to spend a concentrated time in Scripture so that when we walk away, our thoughts and our hearts are different so that we can live, live a transformed life. That word fill has this connotation of life change. So if we just spend some time in Scripture a few minutes before we go to work or right before bed so we can check it off, we will never Allow it to fill our lives so that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves. We have to meditate on it. That's the reason why in his book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, such a great book, Richard Foster says this, the authors of scripture refer to the idea of meditation 58 times in scripture. And in each case, there is stress upon changed behavior as a result of our encounter with the living God. We do not read scripture like a newspaper to gain information. We read scripture for transformation. And if we're reading the Bible and it's not changing our behavior, 
then we're not truly allowing it to fill our lives, which is why we have to allow it to make its home in us so that who Christ says we are and how we ought to live flows out of us because scripture lives in us. Now, this is why this is important on a daily basis. There was this guy who literally had to put this to the test immediately in his own life. His name was Joshua. When you go into the Old Testament and you start to read Joshua chapter 1, you quickly realize, wow, this guy has a huge task before him. Joshua has to do two things right away in his leadership. One, he has to take over for Moses. Can you imagine having to fill Moses' shoes? He's been such a faithful follower of Yahweh. Moses has heard from God himself. Moses has led the Israelites faithfully. But he dies. And the next in command is Joshua. But Joshua, right away, the first thing he has to do is to lead these Israelites into the promised land. So not only is he dealing with, holy smokes, I'm, I'm now in uh, a greater person's footsteps or his shoes in Moses. Now I have to do this unbelievably difficult task in leading the Israelites into the promised land. How does he do it? Thankfully, he has God who starts to speak to him. Now, when you start to read Joshua 1, it kind of reads like a coach's pump-up message before a game. You know how the coach gets in the locker room and starts firing them up, like, you can go out there, you can beat these guys. Well, God does something similar to Joshua. Gives him this pump-up speech to tell him that he can do this. He's made for this. And here's what God says about it. He says in in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, he says, be strong and courageous, For you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land that I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. God says this to Joshua three times in about four verses. This is the theme of God's pump up talk to Joshua. You be strong and courageous. And then at the end of Joshua chapter 1, the people say, Joshua, you be strong and courageous. We're going to follow you. But how does he do it? Now let me ask you, before I tell you the answer, I want you to think about your lives for a moment. When you have a task at hand, whatever that is, whether it's a difficult relationship or a hard conversation at work, or a financial situation, or whatever that thing is that you have to get over, and you know in order to get over it, you have to be strong and courageous. What does that look like for you? How do you do it? Here's what God says to Joshua. He says, be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. These instructions are literally God's words that get written down for us. He says this, you got to obey the instructions. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then, he says, if you obey my instructions, then you will be successful in everything you do. He says, you got to study this book of instruction continually. And there's our meditate word. If we're afraid of meditation, don't read scripture because scripture tells us 58 times to do it. He says, you got to meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. 
Only then, he says. Now look, the connection. When you meditate on God's word, day and night, only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. And he says, God says, this is my command. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. We like the strong and courageous part. Yeah, we can do that. But how we do it makes all the difference. I asked you a question a few moments ago. When you and I need to be strong and courageous, what is your action plan? How many of us would say that it's meditating, filling up, abiding in who Christ is through his word on a regular basis? Who, when we are going into this battle, whatever it is, is holding on to the truth of God so it shapes our thoughts and our imaginations and it allows us to come out in our words and our actions? I'm not saying that we just read a couple Bible verses to get inspired and throw up a prayer and then we rely on our own strength. Because honestly, when you and I rely on our own strength, when we say, I will be strong and I will be courageous, yeah, God will help me along the way, but I will do this, strength and courage evaporate very quickly when we're doing it on our own, don't it? Doesn't it? Friends, what? is your action plan when God is asking you to live life his way. It doesn't even have to be big things. Living in this world on a daily basis takes strength and courage to do it his way. How do you do that? And how much are we missing out on on living God's path? Because like he's warning Joshua, we deviate left or we deviate right. How many of us And our action plan at the top is, God, whatever you say, because I know who you are, you will give me the strength and you will give me the courage to go through this. Did you notice at the end, he says, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. That isn't just God here, like speaking to Joshua. He's saying, you will know what I'm saying and how to go because your word will tell you. His word will guide us and direct us in all the things that we do. If you want to live a life that's Christ-centered, and all we're doing is coming to church once a week, or just reading the daily bread, or reading a devotional, just to be able to check it off and say that we did it, and we didn't allow those verses to make its home in us, Our strength and courage will always come from ourselves and we'll miss out on God's voice and and how to live his way. A big question that I get asked all the time is, why can't I hear God's voice? And the answer I always give back is, are you listening for it? And the way we listen to it is allowing God's word to make its home in us. So when we're approaching a situation, we hear what God has to say about it, consciously and subconsciously. Is that a part of your life? Is that what we're doing on a regular basis? Not just on Sunday, not when we feel like it daily. So we can become who we want to become, especially spiritually. So that's why this is so important. So let me just give you a few ways to do this. Let me give you the practical now, okay? So you may say, okay, that's great. Maybe I'm convinced a little bit more about meditating, but how do I do it? Let me just give you a few tips, and we'll actually get to do it together. The first is this, don't wait for motivation. Embrace discipline. I feel motivated sometimes in the moment, 
But motivation, doesn't it go quickly? And you go back to what you know. That's why you and I, we have to embrace discipline. Discipline is doing the things we need to do no matter if we feel like it or not. There are times, friends, when I'm reading the scriptures in the morning or before I go to bed, and I don't want to. And you can just say, oh, I thought you were a pastor. Shouldn't you want to? No, because I'm really selfish, or I'm really tired, or I'm really busy, and I've crowded God out of my life. And so sometimes I have to spend time doing it when I don't want to do it. Why? Because in the end, when I need it, I'll have it. That's why it's a discipline. You don't just wait until you feel like doing it. You do it even when you feel like you don't want to. Here's why this is important. I love what Psalm 119 has to say. Even princes sit and speak against me, but I will meditate on your decrees. I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. When you're going through whatever you're going through and you discipline yourself that day to spend time in God's word, and something happens you weren't expecting, someone speaks ill of you, you go through a sorrow, look at how the psalmist gets by. And if you didn't discipline yourself that day to read God's word and allow it, not just to read it, but allow it to live in you, how do we deal with things like this? We've got to discipline ourselves to spend time in God's word, not just reading it, but allowing it to make its home in us. The second thing we need to do is to read the text slowly, intentionally, and repeatedly. A lot of times, we read the Bible, like again, we, we want to check it off, and it becomes more about trying to appease God. But God's already pleased with you in Christ. You don't have to do anything to earn your favor, okay? This is now how do we live out of that favor. So we spend time. There are times, and I'll show you a verse in a moment, where I will have a plan, okay, I want to read this chapter or this section of verse 8, and then I read one verse, and I just sit in it. I don't need to read all that other stuff right now. I need this to make its home in me because if not, you're going to be able to tell in my life and it's not going to be good. It's not about information. It's not about quantity. It's quality. And the way that we do that is slowly, word by word, intentionally letting it apply to our lives and we read it over and over again until it gets in our hearts. How do we do that? Well, we ask good questions of the text. So as you're reading a verse or two, not a whole chapter at once, but just a few verses at a time, we start to ask these questions. These are in your notes. What does this say about God's character? How does it point to God's grace? What does this have to say about me? And then what are my next steps in my everyday life? Because remember, it's for transformation, obedience, doing what it says. So we're going to do this this week. And before I give you the first verse, I'm reading through just some different things. The other morning, I opened up my Bible to Philippians 2. I had that bookmarked because I used that for a teaching recently. I was going to skip out of that. And God brought me back to Philippians 2, verse, one, or verse 3. It's the do not be selfish verse. And all of us probably have heard that, taught, know it. But then God says, I want you to sit in this this week. And so I started to type it out on my computer because I type my prayers out. I'm typing it out, and I'm typing it out. And to start to answer some of these questions, it really just wrecked me. And I'm telling you, as I was pastoring that day and leading our staff and being a husband and a father, 
this verse changed how I did it. And I promise you, I'm not good enough to do this. I would not have had these thoughts if it weren't God's and how it gave me a different perspective. So I just want us to do this for a few moments this morning. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Just sit in this for a moment. Put your phones down. Put your pens down. And just ask these questions of the text and allow this to make its home in you. When I was doing this, you don't have to read them in order, like the questions, but right now I read it, what does it say about me? Oh, man, it says a lot. Man, how, I kept thinking to myself, how selfish I've been as a dad lately. That's, that was the thing that came into my mind. And so thankfully it points, points me to God's grace <laughs> because I know that he still loves me and accepts me and he's going to give me a do-over because that's what God's character is all about. And God's character is selfless. So how can I be more like him? And so over my next steps in my day, I just kept thinking, okay, now how do I not be selfish in this way? How do I, there's a couple times I want to impress this person so they think better of me. Well, God's impressed with me. Why do I have to impress them? Those were thoughts coming because God's word made its home in me. If I read it for information, I may have remembered it, maybe not. God said, I need to transform you through my word. Finally, just this one. Don't worry about anything. How would that look in your life if literally your thoughts were shaped by not worrying? <laughs> Instead, just pray about it. Tell God what you need and thank him. Be grateful for all he's done in your life. Then he says, you want God's peace? Don't worry. Again, these are in your notes. Final thing I just want to tell you this morning is make it the last thing you read at night and the first thing you read in the morning. Maybe you know this, maybe not. When you're sleeping, your thoughts don't shut down. There's times when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm freaking out about something. Well, if I read God's word as the last thing I read, it goes back into my subconscious and it starts to speak to me in ways I don't even know. And when I wake up, it wants to, I want it to shape how I live. Not just reading it for information, letting it transform you. And you could do this for weeks and months and years. You may not see any results. But someday, like bamboo, it may shoot up because you've built your life on the solid rock. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to look at the scriptures as a burden or something that we have to check off. Just like when I go on a date with my wife, I don't want to be like, oh, i got to spend time with her. I want to desire that, Lord, and I want to desire to be in your word so it makes my thoughts your thoughts so I can attach myself to you. And the only way that I can hear your voice is to read it, live in it, let it make its home in me. God, for those in this room who are going through situations that they have to be strong and courageous, Lord, the only way we can is living out your word 
by meditating on it day and night and obeying what it says, God, help us to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.